If you have a Bible, we're going to begin in Genesis 3 this morning. Very familiar text, but fitting with our conversation over the last couple of weeks about the image of God, what it's like to be made in God's image, and what happened that separated us from God, that put that gap between us and Him. Uh, we are going to be talking a little bit more about, uh, about that gap and about the uh, ramifications of that fall that uh, occurred way back in Genesis 3 and how Christ has made a way for us to get back to God. So I hope that uh, you look forward to today's uh, message from God's Word. I believe it's uh, as scriptural as we can get in terms of finding uh, from God and hearing from God um, about this crucial conversation and this crucial topic. If you have a Bible again, Genesis 3, I want to begin reading verses 1 through uh, 11. I believe everybody's familiar with this story. We kind of know what the story is all about and what happened as a result of the story, but I want to set the tone um, with this text this morning. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So underlined that they hid themselves, something they had never done before, never felt like they needed to do before. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said, where are you? Because there had never been this separation. They always were completely accessible one to another. Where are you, Adam? So that he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat from? What a powerful, you know, I've heard that story since I was a kid and every time I read it, it still sends chills up my spine because I, I just think, I can't believe this happened. But had it been you and me, we probably would have went the same direction. Had it been you or I, we probably would have went the same path that Adam and Eve did. But every time I read it, I'm just thinking, wow, it was so close to being perfect. And we're so far away from that now, aren't we? You know, about a year ago, uh, as if the year wasn't already off to a challenging, chaotic start, uh, things got even more complicated for our country. Uh, not to bring up old things, but a conversation that continues to go on and, and just a reminder of just how broken our world is and how in conflict our world is. A, a series of events last May sparked a summer-long conversation of national tension uh, around the conversations of equality and around the conversation uh, of, of equal rights. And, and while we've had conversations pertaining to that specific issue, last summer and earlier this year, this is a, there's a different reason that I bring that up at the beginning of our talk today. 
in efforts to categorize and understand and explain the issue or potential issue um, of racial injustice, there was a word that was thrown around, uh, a pretty heavy word that became pretty much part of the national conversation for the last year or so. Now, the word provokes, initiates deep conversations. The word, when I say it, it will, you'll immediately recall it and you'll recall it being used quite often. Uh, whether you agree or disagree with its use in reference to last summer or the events around that certain sort of unrest uh, or that particular thread uh, or any particular thread in our country, um, I think this word and what it suggests is a word that the church ought not turn away from so quickly because this word, though it's often leveraged politically and socially without regards to its context, this word is actually fitting and appropriate when it comes to the church understanding our struggle, a struggle that uh, has plagued every generation, every tribe, every tongue, a, a, a struggle that has plagued every people group from households to workplaces to governments, from local towns to foreign nations. This word is really appropriate in describing what really is causing all of our troubles. Now, the word I'm referring to is systemic. Now, you've heard that a lot on the news lately and pertaining to different sorts of things. We're familiar with it. We've heard it a lot, uh, and it's been so frequently used, we've probably really lost sight of what it actually means. Uh, it, it sort of stuck with me, though, over the last year, and it's resonated with me, not really for the reasons why it was being propagated in culture, but pertaining to how it might help us understand the even more severe issue that plagues our world. Now, I want to define the word systemic before we move forward, if you would. Uh, systemic means relating to and running through the entire system, which hence the word system. It's as if it's infected, and it's not necessarily a negative word, but we use it in negative connotations, don't we? Running through and relating to the entire system and its core to the essence of the system. It's almost as if the system can't exist without the situation, without the problem, if it is a bad thing, or without this essence and the system actually kind of keeps it going. It's like a water wheel. It perpetuates the problem. It doesn't have to be negative, but we assume it's negative uh, just because of the overtones that we hear with the word. Now, I want to focus on the idea of, of this systemic issue or systemic conditions. There are really two types of systemic problems that can exist, and I want to bring our attention to the two different kinds, uh, and I think you'll see where this is going. Uh, I want to talk about these using simple words that we can understand and we can easily parse from each other. There are intentional systemic issues, and there are unintentional systemic issues. Easy enough, right? There are those that were intended to be a part of the system, and there were those that were unintended to be a part of the system, yet found their way in anyway. Now, I think another way to, to, to characterize this is there are poured issues and there are spilled issues. Now, you know the difference, right? When you pour something into a bowl, you wanted it to be there. When you spill the bowl, you never intended that to happen, right? So we see the difference, but either way, whether you pour it or spill it, once it's all you know, gotten out of the bowl or into the bowl, it's in the bowl, right? You can't get it out of it unless you're some miracle chef, right? Now, again, there's the kind that people intend on, whether with good intentions, that you want this to be a part of the company or you want this to be baked into the DNA of your family, of your business, of your you know, thing that you're organizing. 
And of course, there are those that build in bad ideas to their systems. Now, we usually don't think about this and, and really it's really rare that people would build in bad ideas to their systems, right? I mean, I don't think nobody's that maniacal, maybe supervillains, but I'm gonna give us a pass. I don't think most people, most people that you know, and unless they're a terrorist organization, there's really not much of intentional systemic issues in our world, uh, unless you are, of course, someone who's just wanting to do bad things and wanting to cause harm. And yes, those people exist, but I'm gonna give us a pass. Most of us, we've never been around that sort of thing. And, and most governments and most systems, that's not how you would describe them, right? Most, most businesses and so forth, that's not intentional, uh, even though things may end up being a part of the system. Now, Political parties throw around the word intentional systemic issues because they want to be very charged with their language. They want to make sure the other side looks as vilified as possible, right? They want to make you think that side is not just wrong, but they're evil, right? And we do that to each other, don't we? And, and, and if you're on one side, you might think that about the other side, and that's okay. You might be right. They might be right. I don't know. But the point of it is we use that very charged rhetoric when talking about our enemies or our rivals. Now, again, Usually, though, our world deals with the unintentional kind of systemic issues, the unintended or the accidental kinds of systemic issues. Uh, these are the kinds that nobody intended on them being a part of whatever system that you are referring to. They kind of just got spilled into the system. Now, this, cannot all, this isn't always in reference to bad things. Maybe you have a family recipe that your grandmother or great-grandmother came up with and they never intended on making it. They accidentally kind of you know, made it one day and they kind of continued to copy that through the years, right? It was a happy accident. Most situations, though, uh, when something is unintended, unintentionally added to something, it doesn't lead to good results and, and it doesn't really, uh, you know, isn't repeated. But the problem is you can't undo it that easily. And the reason why I bring all this up is our world suffers from an unintended systemic condition. I'm not referring to our country. I'm not referring to a certain generation of people. I am going even farther than that. So, you know, if that might be offensive to some, hey, that's fine. But I'm going to go as far as I can. Our world suffers from a systemic problem, something baked into, hardwired into our system. It wasn't intentionally put there. Nobody wanted it there but it was kind of just spilled in there. You see where we're going with this? It was accidentally, even though the people that were holding the bowl knew what they were doing, they didn't think it would lead to this. Now there's something in us that may want to reject this idea that, there, that, that certain groups throw around, but there's really no way that we can deny the truth that our world suffers from systemic problems. That maybe didn't come from uh, that didn't come from someone's malicious plot, but in one way or another, these issues spilled into an otherwise perfect or at least tremendously capable system. And it's because of this core systemic flaw that our world is constantly in turmoil. Every day you can find someone say with exasperation on the news or online or in your friend circle, "When is this going to stop?" doesn't seem like it ever will. Regardless of what we're talking about, there's always some kind of turmoil, isn't there? 
Now, just considering the major events in our, the past year, but just consider what's happened in the past few weeks, we've seen a, a resurgence of this age-old hostility between the nation of Israel and Palestine. What if I told you that that is a result of our world's systemic problems? Would you believe it? Now, what if I told you that the racial tension in our country and around the world, what if I told you that was a result of our world's systemic problems? You know, over the past year, we've been locked in together a little more than maybe we would have intended to be. We've had to uh, spend time, more time with people maybe than we would have liked to. Not that we don't love our families, but reports have shown and, 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 and studies have shown that because we've had to spend more time with the same people, we've kind of gotten on each other's nerves more. And, and families have had a little bit uh, tougher time cooperating than normally because there isn't that time to decompress and get away and do, do the normal things, work from, you know, working away from home and all that. What if I told you that even that stuff is a result of our world's systemic problems? And while I'm trying to sell you on the single cause of the plagues that, uh, that come on us all, would you believe the book of Genesis reveals the origin to all of these conflicts? Remember, we talked about how Genesis chronicles and charts humanity drifting east from God. Well, while they drift east, you can easily earmark the moments in time when these same conflicts, when these same conflicts began and isn't it amazing that we still feel the impact and suffer from the ramifications of those conflicts that began 4,000 plus years ago? Maybe you don't believe me, but I think I can intrigue you with this first example. The Israel and Palestine conflict, for instance, both claim the, the core of the problem between Israel and Palestine is that both people groups claim rights to the same real estate. Now, if you've ever had a dispute between land with your neighbor, you know that that can get messy pretty quickly, right? Now, add to that missiles and organizations that are pumping in money and, and, and firepower, and it gets even more complicated, right? More messy. So, 4,000 years ago, God called a man called Abram, originally Abram, then called Abraham later. God called Abraham that he was going to start a nation through this man. He told Abraham, I want you to pack your bags. And I want you to go to a land that I'll show you when you get there. I'm not giving you a map, Abraham. Just follow the stars and follow me. So Abraham wanders through the wilderness and comes to a land called Canaan that God says, this is your nation. And through this nation, I'm going to bring a savior who's going to fix the world's biggest problems. Abraham said, God, I don't know what the world's problems are, but my problem problem is that my wife and I can't have a child. I'm in my 70s and she is not far behind me and we're getting a little too old for this hoping and wishing sort of thing. God said, Abraham, don't worry. I'm going to give you and Sarah a son and through him, I'm going to bring salvation to the world. Well, time went on. Try 10, 15, 25 years and Abraham is still without child and Sarah is still unable to conceive. So Abraham and Sarah begin coming up with an idea to help God out. So Abraham imposes himself on his servant girl, Hagar, and that gives birth to his, finally, his firstborn, Ishmael. Now, Ishmael, you know the story, uh, God, Abraham brought him to God and said, God, Ishmael can be the one who is blessed. Through Ishmael, you can bring salvation to the world. And God said, Ishmael, I'll love him and I'll bless him and I'll favor him. Tribes and nations will come from him, but he is not the son I promised you, Abraham. Ishmael understood this and God gave Sarah, a son, a few years later, they called him Isaac. It all seemed right and well, but as generations would pass, Ishmael's descendants became indignant toward Isaac's and tensions began to boil and boil. 
Isaac would go on to have two sons of his own, Esau and Jacob. They were twins. And if you know the story, they were in conflict from their womb. And again, there's the crossroad in this promised blessing story. Isaac wanted Ishmael, Isaac wanted Esau to carry on the blessing while his wife, Rebekah, wanted Jacob to carry on the blessing. God was gonna choose Jacob, but rather than waiting on God, Jacob and his mother worked to swindle the blessing and birthright from Esau. And Genesis tells us that Esau made an alliance with Ishmael, and that was just the beginning of this coalition of descendants of Abraham who felt robbed and were determined to take back what was rightfully, that they believed, rightfully theirs. Now, Jacob would go on to be given the name Israel, and we know the rest of that story. While Ishmael and Esau were both blessed by God and were welcomed into the covenant of Israel and were given benefits in, in, in a part of its promise. However, because of this tension that grew and grew, the surrounding nations always resented Israel because God was just always on their side. The Philistines that came from Ishmael, the Edomites that came from Esau and other perennial adversaries of Israel, eventually these tribes created a rival faith to Judaism and began to worship the God of Abraham in their own way. Belief that he was the real God, but opposing the faith of Israel. Now, we all know how this story goes. Eventually, God sent a son, sent his son through Israel and Christianity was born. And Rome, because of all the trouble the Jews had brought on their empire, or seemingly so, Rome decided to raise Jerusalem in 70 AD and ended Judaism as the world once knew it. Blaming the Jews for all of its problems and giving rise to the church, Rome enacted heavy persecution on the Jews, and eventually they would exile the Jews from the land after the second Jewish war in 130 AD. Now listen closely. Emperor Hadrian mandated that Judea be erased from the Roman maps and the territory was renamed Palestine as an insult to the Jews in honor of their old enemies, the Philistines and the Phoenicians. From that territory, its efforts to rewrite history of the land, to reshape the stories that were passed around, Islam was eventually formed, which stripped Isaac and Jacob of their, of their patriarchal status and retro retroactively, excuse me, retroactively gave the glory to Ishmael and Esau. To this day, this is what drives the tension between and outright hatred between these two people groups because of how things went 4,000 years ago. And this isn't a political statement about what's going on in the Middle East, but the point of all that is this. Because Abraham had an inappropriate relationship with his servant and because Jacob and Rebekah tricked Esau, this is what our world was given. Isn't it crazy how something that started with just a few people has caused so much strife and bloodshed on the whole world? From a breakdown in a home of a few people, the whole world inherited strife without end. That's what you call systemic, isn't it? 
Now, I won't go into much detail over the rest, but you can equally trace all the racial tensions that exist in our world back to Genesis. Because as the nations begin to spread around after Noah's, after the flood, they begin to be jealous of each other and begin to look down on each other. And you wonder, why did that happen? Well, the story of humanity is pretty simple. People constantly look for ways to justify themselves over others. And often race is the lowest hanging fruit. And it's easy to use that as a scapegoat to look down on somebody else. And these same tribal tensions persist in our world today and they've only gotten worse. And core to both of these that we've traced, isn't it true they all started out not because of economics or politics or political parties, but because of a handful of people at one point in time did something towards one another that was wrong. Think of the strife that exists between Joseph and his brothers, Abraham. It all started in their homes, right? Uh, between his brothers. Think about the strife between Lot and Abraham, the sexual uh, uh, you know, breakdowns in Genesis from Dinah's defilement and, and Judah's uh, relationship with his daughter-in-law. All these things that are so awful in Genesis, it all started in people's homes. It all started in these close relationships between people that were core to the story. Jacob had four wives. Sodom, of course, had its abomination. Abraham had multiple wives. Abraham betrayed Sarah's trust when Pharaoh wanted to take her as his own wife. Again and again, we see how it all, all these tensions began in the homes of these people. You go through every chapter in Genesis and what you see the most is a breakdown in the family between those relationships that matter most. I mean, think about Genesis 4 when there are just four people on planet Earth, two siblings declare war against each other, and one murders the other. Brothers. So I guess if, I'm, if we're trying to suss out and pinpoint the cancer, it all begins flowing from the very first family, from the very first couple, from the story in a scene that we're all familiar with. It all started when Adam and Eve, made in God's image, failed to rest in him and attempted to reach for more. That's what the serpent tempted them with, right? That you can have more. You don't need to rest in God. God's image isn't enough for you. You need more. You need to rival him. You need to oppose him. You need to go over him. Why in the world would they fall for that? Yet they did, didn't they? In that moment, they were unclothed of innocence and covered in shame, attempting to reach for more power. They lost their purity, and every one of us did along with them. There's, a, there's, no, there's not a subtle notion that Adam failed to be a leader uh, as well. He was created to be, to cling to Eve, yet he yields her to sin. He didn't attempt to intervene. He didn't attempt to protect her. He failed to lead. He insisted, uh, rather than encouraging and assisting, he followed her into sin into bondage. God says, Adam, where are you? Because he was hiding because of his shame. The scripture says there in verse number 12 that Adam blames his wife. He says, the woman you gave me, gave it to me. And of course, God turns to Eve and says, what have you done? And she blames the servant because that's what sin does. It never takes responsibility for what it decided to do and it always passes it to somebody else. And of course the serpent smiles because it was his plan all along to separate them from God. He yields no excuse. He's proud of what he did. And this is where the spill occurred. Again, this was unintentional. Nobody wanted this to happen except for the serpent, right? But Adam and Eve, they didn't think this would happen. If you could ask them, hey, did you know this was going to happen? Of course they didn't. Even if they were warned. 
And in that moment, humanity capsized into sin and the bloodstream was cursed with a systemic bent, not just with rebellion against God. Because as, as we've seen in Genesis, what is the greatest turmoil that we witness in Genesis? Strife between one another in the family, in the nations, and eventually to the whole world. Break from our fellowship with God was instantly and would always be tied to the breakdown of our closest relationships. And that's really an underrated and underplayed part of this story of what God prophesies over them after this. Now, after this, God, many call this the curse, but it's not really a curse. It's just really God telling them what sin is going to do to them, what they have invited on their own lives. And if anything, God did not curse them, but he spared them by not punishing them. He could have killed them like he said they would die. He didn't kill them. He spared their life and clothed them in animal skin at the end of this chapter because he had a plan for them. He wasn't going to give up. Sin entered their lives. The serpent stood by quite pleased with himself. But in the final part of this chapter, God addresses the three parties and he informs them of their systemic condition, but also... God is going to build in systemic frustration as in reminders to Adam and Eve that this world is now imperfect and it's fallen and they need a savior to get them out of it, out of the sin, out of the mess. So the serpent was responsible for introducing sin. Adam and Eve took the bait, the curse swept over all through all into us all. But God decides to discipline Adam and Eve and therefore affecting all the men and women to come. He builds in frustration to our existence, which is meant to draw us back to him. He created a perfect world, a fair world. He had to dial back all those systems in order to make humanity uncomfortable in their sin, lest they die in it. So, when we were about, so what we're about to read, or when we read about the pain and childbearing and the burden of work, both of these were part of God's plan to build in frustration and, of course, bring people back to him. But there's one thing that God did not add, but rather he informs them of what sin would cause and do. And I want to bring your attention to that when we, as we close. Down in, chapter, down in verse 16, the last two lines of that stanza... I want to bring your attention to this because this probably doesn't mean what you maybe think it means. God says to Eve, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, let me make it very clear. These shalls are not commandments. This is God saying, Eve and Adam, this is what's going to happen as a result of sin. This is what now has entered into the human race because of your decision to sin against me. Your natural disposition towards one another is going to be opposition. It's going to be antagonizing each other. Eve, you will try to be in control. Adam is going to try to be in control because no longer do you see each other as equals and partners. No longer do you see a complete image of God. Now you see competition. And isn't this rest of the story of Genesis all about the family butting heads, whether husband, wife, and family, and everyone else that goes along with it? God made Adam and Eve to show the full picture of his image, to compliment one another. And what he is telling us here in that verse is that rather than complimenting and completing his image, we would be in constant conflict and competition with one another from now on. Again, not just between man and wife or husband and wife, but between humans and each other. All of us would be immersed in this systemic strife. 
because everybody wants to be their own God. And everyone wants everybody else to fall in line with their ideas. Thus, this explains while the unraveling that takes place throughout Genesis, throughout the rest of time, and it all is rooted back to the most intimate of relationships, which tells us, I think it proves that all of human conflict and strife stems from our falling away from God's image. If I can convince you of anything, I hope that we can see that in God's word. All of human conflict from the home to every other room we'll ever enter into stems from this falling away from God's image. Because of these fallouts that spark the biggest fires, do the most damage, that ultimately become so out of control, we forget where they came from. We just assume it's part of the world. And thus, this is the sinful fallen nature that's within us, around us, and all over our world, systemic to every facet of creation. And this would be awful if this is all we were dealt with. But God's word doesn't just say, this is the problem. God's word says, God is gonna bring a solution to the problem. But we've gotta admit that this is the world that we live in and we desperately need God's intervention and we need God's redemption to bring us out of the conflict and strife that we are so stuck in as people. And the only hope for us is to get back to the image of God, to seek his face and follow his plan and pathway back. God makes a promise in Genesis 3.15 to the serpent. He says, your seed and my seed will be in conflict, but my seed, Eve's seed, will bruise your head. God promised in Genesis 3.15, he says, I will send a savior. And we know that he did indeed send a savior. Jesus Christ is that savior. He came to die for our sins and to be raised up to free us from our sin. Being forgiven, being freed enables us to walk as Jesus walked and enables us to no longer follow in Adam's path. And rather than just kind of leaving this out there for you to figure out on your own, I'm glad that God's word guides us in getting back to him. Not just saying Jesus does this and this for us in some ethereal way, but it gives us very practical advice and, 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 and things to follow to get back to God's image. And aren't you glad that God's word is that spelled out in that black and white? Now, before we leave, I want you to go to turn over to John three with me real quickly. John 13, excuse me. I wanna break this down for you very quickly. You've heard me preach this before. This will be some repeated material for you, but I think it's important that we remember this before we get out of here. In John 13, Jesus kind of embodies the whole purpose for which he came. In John 13, Jesus directly counters and provides the exclusive cure for our fallen systemic condition. John 13 is essentially a living definition of why Jesus became one of us and what our lives can look like reimagined after him. Do you want that? Do you want that new and reimagined version of yourself as God always intended for you? Do you want to walk in his image and live in his image like you, we were always meant to? John 13 is the key for us to figure this out. We're told that Jesus lays it all on the table in this chapter, making it clear to his disciples, his motives in coming to them. Turn, if, you, if you will, if you found your place there, 
John 13, verse 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should part, depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Or he showed them the full extent of his love. Supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things to his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. So in this moment, Jesus steps back and says, wow, I am large and in charge. None of these guys are going to stand by my side. That guy's got the devil in him. These other guys are going, to betray, are going to abandon me. In this moment, Jesus knows his worth. He knows his glory. He knows what he deserved. He knows what he's about to suffer. He was facing not celebration, but one of these men would betray him. The other would abandon him and he would bleed out on a Roman cross the next day. And in this moment, Jesus knows it's getting very real. And he makes a decision to either go through with it or bail out of it. In this moment, it dawned on Jesus that he was the most powerful person in the room, in the world. And he had to make a decision. What am I going to do with this power? He could bail out. He could make it all about himself. He could leverage and seize power for him. Or he could do what he came to do, crush the enemy with his heel, end the enmity between those in the world, and lay down his life to save us. It dawned on him. He was so powerful. He was so almighty. He was fully God. He had spent all these years focusing on everybody but himself. And in this moment, he thinks, wow, I could just for this once make it all about me. He could break from the script. He could leverage his power for himself. Or he could lay it down for everyone else. And this is where this comes back to us. What do you do when you find yourself in the same situation? When it comes to your relationships, your job, when opportunities are in front of you, when everyone is looking or when no one is looking, what do you do when it dawns on you that you're the most powerful person in the room? You have all the influence, all the leverage. You can change the direction of the conversation. You can influence the emotions of the moment. You hold the outcome in the palm of your hand. You can shift the conversation. You can lead. You can control. You can leverage your finances or leverage your, you know, your, your, your uh, charisma, you have all the power in the room. What do you do? Isn't this where we all want to be? Isn't this what the world says we dream, we should dream for, that we should be in control? Isn't this what we all desire to dominate any room we're ever in and have all the power in our own hands and get what we want out of anybody and anything? Isn't that what men, isn't that what we are trained to want? And sees. And here's the thing. Sin sees to it that we are tempted with these opportunities. It fuels and instigates this power struggle. And that's what we see on every page of Genesis, isn't it? The source of every fallout we've been cleaning up, up, up from and digging out of ever since. And only becoming more and more enslaved by. Because we so often choose the same path that Adam and Eve chose. And everyone that came after them. But think about this, in every room you're in, the break room, the boardroom, the family room, the classroom, at the heart of it all is relationships. And how we act and what we do reveals the nature of how we relate to the most important people in our lives. 
And you know why this is a big deal, church? Because the realization and the reflection of the image of God lives and dies based on what we do in situations like this. Jesus is the only one in the room and it dawned on him that he was the most powerful and he's the only one that this is ever true about. He sees the enemy, he knows the Father has promised him all things, he knows his destiny, it's pressing on him in a way they had never had before. He is the power and the glory. And what does he do? Y'all been here long enough, you know what this story, how this story goes. What does he do? He gets up from supper, he lays aside his outer garment, he takes a towel and girds himself and he pours water in a basin and he begins to wash their feet. The most powerful man in the room gets up, removes his glory, removes his outer garment, puts on a servant's towel. I mean, what is that a picture of? God in high on a throne in glory, watching us in sin, stewing in our own systemic mess. And what did he do? He got off of his throne and became one of us, right? That's the incarnation. He became one of us, living for us and dying for us. This is what it's like to live in the image of God because this is the perfect picture of God. And our flesh rejects every notion of this, doesn't it? Oh, I'm glad Jesus did it, but I'm out. He poured himself out for us on the cross, establishing something very core to the Christian message. That it should be all about powerful people emptying themselves for the sake of the less powerful. You can replace powerful with right, wealthy, fortunate, wise, gifted, popular, whatever. Even if it means forgiving someone, especially when it means forgiving someone, Peter says, Jesus, you're not gonna wash my feet. And Peter, he says, Peter, I've gotta wash you all over because of your sin, but I've come to do it, don't worry. Forgiven people emptying themselves for the sake of the unforgiven, before you say it, Justin, that might be a little far. Is this not just something Jesus did for us? Is he really establishing a precedent that we must follow? Look down at verse 12 through 15. So when he washed their feet and taken his garment, he sat down again. He said, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, for so, am, so I am. If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. I have shown you what it looks like to be in the image of God. And I'm bringing you back there through my death and through my resurrection. I'm bringing you back here. And now, from now on, this is the way you are to live always and forever. We've heard of the golden rule, but this is a step above that. Do unto others as Jesus has done unto us. If we just get this one thing right, how different every room we ever walk into would it be. At the end of this chapter, another very familiar section of verses, Jesus says a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. You can look for yourself, verse 34. 
Love one another as I have loved you. You also should love one another. You owe no one nothing but love. As in your priority is to love one another as I have loved you. You ask, what does love require of me? Love is never selfish. It's always sacrificial. Jesus says in verse 35, by this they will know that you are mine. If you love one another, husbands, love your wives like I have loved my church, willing to die for them. Wives, love your husband like the church adores Christ. Businessmen and women, love your employees. Employees, love those around you. And it goes on and on. The New Testament spreads this ethic to every room you ever enter into. By this, they'll know that you're mine, not your wisdom, not your attendance, not your power, how you serve and how you love. To put Christ first is to love first. Love doesn't wait to react. Have you ever been in the situation where you think, well, I'm going to wait and see what they say to me first? We do this in our marriages all the time, don't we? We want to be the second one to talk. Love doesn't wait to react. Love reaches out first. Church, if this, does not drive, if this doesn't drive us in our closest relationships, it'll by no means drive us in 99% of our other interactions. Love looks out in every room it enters, living room, boardroom, worship room, and realizes how it got there and why it was put there, and it seizes every moment to live up to its name. When it dawned on Jesus, he had all the power. He leaned into his purpose, and he laid it down. He says to me, and he says to you, I have set for you an example. This is what it's like to be reimagined after Jesus. Reimaged. We now bring God's transforming power into every room with us. Do you? To every classroom, boardroom, break room, family room, you are to bring this transforming power. Isn't isn't this what our world desperately needs? Wouldn't this bring a solution to our systemic fallen condition? Listen, it might not be our fault that such and such has happened. Nobody's blaming you for it. But we are doomed to repeat the same decisions if we don't seek God's face and let him recover us. We have to be proactive and acknowledge and admit our sin and receive his grace. We cannot play the game of deference and indignation. I mean, think about it. We're never going to convince Palestine and Israel to to be reconciled. God will one day, but we can't. We're never going to solve all the racial tensions in the world. We're never going to fix every family crisis in the world. But guess what? The nations and parties of the world might not take this seriously. But you know who can take it seriously? You. And me. And us. I'm not sure I understand. Nobody understands, Siri. My watch said I don't understand. Right? We don't. But one person, and that's your conscience, right? That's what our flesh says, right? Not going to lean that into anymore, but that's, I'll take that for what it was. One person at a time to every classroom, every boardroom, every break room, every family room, every room you walk into, you can say, I'm going to do what Jesus says I should do. In the New Testament, you read this again and again and again. Submit to one another. Submit to one another. This is perfectly summarized by Paul in Philippians 2. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is, in, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Hmm. This is the Christian way. This is the power down, the loving way. A submission competition that always seeks to put the other first, that always seeks to raise others and lower self. Listen, church, there is nothing in me and nothing in you that wants to do this, that wants to go the way that Jesus said in John 13. But if you put your faith in Jesus for salvation from sin, and if you trust in him, this is the path he leads you down. If you resist this path, it probably means you're still resisting Jesus. And I get it, sin is powerful. Sin is dominating. Sin is alluring. But don't you see what damage sin has caused our world? Don't we see enough of what selfish, me-first, power-up living has done to and for our world? I don't want to bring up old wounds, but don't you see what this has done to your marriages and your families? Let alone what it's done to every other room you go into? What if we obeyed these words from Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition, count others more significant than you? What if we, husbands, wives, bosses, teachers, students, peers, colleagues, what if we choose to submit like Jesus did and like Adam didn't? What a difference it would make, what a different world it would create. Again, we can't fix everything, we can't solve every crisis, but we can make the decision for ourselves. Jesus is calling us to this place to counter systemic condition of strife and conflict. We lay down our lives, reimagined after Christ. We choose submission. Can you imagine a world where this was systemic? If every Christian poured themselves out into our world, how this could counter what's bad and broken about it? You can help reimagine it after the image of Jesus. Our world can begin to heal one relationship at a time. If you would do this for the sake of your relationships, for just one person like Jesus would have done it just for you. What a difference we might could make. Would you join me in asking God to reimagine us after the image of Jesus? I'm not going to ask everybody to come forward today, but as we sing, if God is calling you personally to make some changes in your life, to power down, to humble yourself, to submit to somebody, everybody, maybe the best thing we could do is physically and symbolically submit ourselves to God in front of everybody as a sign of what we're going to do out in this world. I don't know what God's talking to you about, but I know what my flesh says about this. It doesn't want to do it. But if we want to get back to God, this is the only way. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for helping us to understand what is wrong with our world, what is wrong with me, what is wrong with them, what is wrong with our country, what is wrong with every country. 
Father, would you work in the house today to show everybody that you can solve this, you can cure this, you can counter this by giving us Jesus and giving us the mind of Jesus and helping us to walk after his image and help us to choose love and laying down power and submitting to each other over anything else? God, would you start with me? in my home, in every room I enter into? Would you help me to do that? Would you help all of us do that? In Jesus' name, amen.